Hello and welcome to the Reconstructionist Podcast where we help you reconstruct while you deconstruct so you don't self-destruct. So this week I am bringing you a conversation with Amy Bird and I am super excited to share it with you. Um, Amy is an author, a teacher, a thinker, and her last book she really tackled um, women and men in the church and this whole idea of biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, and she very cleverly, in my opinion, titled her book Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood as a kind of critique and comment on the more popular book um, when it comes to these kinds of thoughts, which is Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And her perspective, I think, no matter what side you fall on, I think will be really refreshing and something that we need to hear um, that men and women are both equals in God's kingdom. We both follow the same Jesus um, and we're both needing discipleship. And she really tackles and critiques how discipleship has worked itself out, how it's been unhealthy for both males and females and how we can actually find a better way. And I think she's really unique in the sense that she's not sitting on a side trying to burn another one down. Um, she's not sitting on a side trying to cancel the people who don't agree with her, that she's honestly sitting in the middle, wrestling with the scriptures and trying to call us to what she's seeing in the Bible. And so without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with Amy. All right. Hey, Amy, how's it going? Going well. How are you doing? Oh, I am great. I'm so excited for this interview. Uh, I've been looking forward to this a little bit. So thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, for those who don't know who you are and don't know about your book or the things that you've been up to, can you just give us a little bit about you, what you've been up to, um, how life has been for you in this COVID craziness? <laughs> um, sure. Um, so I'm an author and a speaker and I used to be a podcaster. And um, so I've written, well, I'm, I'm working on my sixth book right now. And um, so I've been writing, I think my first book was published in 2013. And I, I kind of write from the perspective of a lay person in the church, a woman, a woman from the pews, um, who in the beginning of my writing, I just really saw a lack of investment in women in the church. Mm -hmm. And I saw women kind of being satisfied with the the poor quality of uh, resources that were given yeah. to us. And so I really wanted to just encourage women that, you know, hey, we're theologians too. What we uh, know about God matters and it, mm -hmm. it actually transforms our everyday living. And um, so like my first book was kind of like a tool um, that I was hoping to get out there to you know, just motivate women to be better theologians and then um, to kind of guide conversation and, and talking about what that means and how that affects our lives. And um, the book did pretty well. I think that there was definitely an audience out there who was um, mm -hmm. kind of lamenting the same things as me and wanting that encouragement and wanting to grow as disciples. Um, and from there, I got invited to do speaking engagements and um, a podcast that I did for seven years with a pastor and an academic, just talking about all kinds of different um, theological topics, but then also, uh, you know, what's going on in the evangelical subculture yeah. as a whole. 
Um, we talked about a lot of that kind of stuff. And um, so it gave me a lot of opportunities. I was able to, you know, meet a lot of different academics and pastors and, and also just in my speaking engagements, get into a lot of local churches and see what's going on there. And that um, really got me, you know, writing more. And it's kind of been mm -hmm. this, uh, I hate to use the word journey because it's like so overused, but, um, you know, one book has kind of um, another stepping, each book is kind of a stepping stone or appealing yeah. another layer away for like what it's, what it's like for, um, you know, women who want to be disciples in the church. I, I write to mm -hmm. both men and women. Um, I've had to write on topics. Well, I didn't have to, but I've written on topics such as, you know, male and female friendship, because I found a lot of, um, a lot of stumbling blocks, just mm -hmm. being a woman in this subculture and, and as you know, talking um, theologically with uh, different people and, and the way that I was treated as a woman and, and this whole kind yeah. of keep, keep at arm's distance kind of thing, like we're threats. Um, so, I, you know, I wrote a book on friendship between the sexes and how, you know, we are siblings in Christ. Um, so we're brothers and sisters. And, and what does that mean then and how we treat mm -hmm. one another and you know our main goal should be uh, promoting holiness in our relationships so um i wrote a book about the resources that are uh so that that book was why can't we be friends i've written a book about the resources that are um given to women in the church and, and how we view women in discipleship um that book's mm -hmm. called no little women and then um the, the last book that i've published is called recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood and that one really is I guess, um, just really looking at the water that we're swimming in, you know, that we don't even realize of, because it sounds like such a good thing. We want to be biblical men and biblical women. We do want to have a, a good response to the culture around us and the sexual revolution. And um, so there's, you know, very good intentions behind this movement. But um, I found that there's some serious um, teaching error in it. And mm -hmm. it also is really handicapping both men and women in the church as disciples. So um, my book is kind of trying to peel that away and, and reveal something, you know, even richer and more beautiful in scripture. Um, so that's kind of a background of my writing. Um, I've been married for 23 years. My kids are kind of getting reaching young adult stage. I've got 21 year old, 19 and a 16 year old. Mm. Um, so that's terrifying. And, um, COVID has been interesting. I don't know what to say. I've written a book through it. So <laughs> during the quarantine, so that's kind of nice. Um, but I'm having to do that now with everybody else being home as well, which is yeah. not easy, but we've done a lot of outdoor stuff. It's, this month has been hard because we've had a lot of snow, but, um, over the summer we were, you know, tubing on the river and hiking and I, I was just hiking in December, still tr trying to get outside and do things. Yeah, no, yeah, COVID's been uh, interesting to say the least. I feel like yeah. everybody's picked up. So you start writing a book. I started a podcast. I'm sure lots of people are like, I just got to do something. <laughs> yeah, I know, really. Your creative energies have to get out, right? Yeah, so I guess it's been good for that. Um, yeah, so your last book, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, um, kind of came along at the right time for me when I was trying to think through all this stuff. Um, and it was great. And I thought your introduction was funny where it was the first time, because usually I skip the introductions because I'm like, I'm just going to get to <laughs> That's it. That's why I and titled it that. I know. Yours was titled The Introduction You Can't Skip. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I'm glad I didn't because you tell this really interesting story 
about a woman and a doctor in this yellow wallpaper. And I was wondering if you could like just let us into that story and what that story means and what happens in it that kind of critiques and comes against the typical Christian church culture when it comes to biblical manhood and womanhood. Yeah, I don't want to give the whole story away because I want your listeners to read it, but I'll, I'll say a little bit about it. So I read The Yellow Wallpaper is a short story that was written in uh, the late 1800s. Um, and I've he- I'd heard about it, you know, um, I'm a reader, you know, I like good literature and I've heard about it, but I never had actually read it. So I bought it. And I mean, it's, it's a super small, it's like, I don't yeah. even know if you could call it a book because it's just a short story, but, um, I bought it and took it with me on a plane ride uh, to one of my speaking engagements. And it was one of those stories that you read that just kind of changes you, you know, um, I get to, you get to the end too. And the ending is kind of creepy and freaky and you're like, Oh my goodness. Then you want to go back to the beginning and reread it again, kind of story. Um, and so the story is about this, this woman who, um, the reader can tell that she has uh, postpartum depression, like severe, but she doesn't know this. That wasn't a diagnosis in the late 1800s. But what was a popular diagnosis at the time was something called neurasthenia. And it was kind of like a, an anxiety disorder um, that was really a popular diagnosis popularized by a specific doctor at the time. And um, it's interesting because men and women were treated differently for it. So um, it was diagnosed as like because the pace of modern life um, was, you know, and technology was increasing so much, but that, you know, these, these people can't keep up with that. So for women, you know, they were told that they couldn't, like they had to remove themselves from intellectual life, from social activity, um, from everything. They're just to, to be on rest therapy. Um, And, but men, you know, men who were diagnosed with it were told, you know, you need to get out to the frontier, go out west, you know, do some push-ups, <laughs> ride some horses, you know, this kind of manly stuff, and, and they'll be cured. So, you know, just the way that um, men and women are stereotyped by this diagnosis kind of mm-hmm. affects, um, you know, whether or not they're going to be cured even. Or, or, and this woman who wrote the yellow wallpaper, this happened to her. And mm. it actually drove her mad almost. And um, yeah. because, she, you know, she's a writer, uh, she's a thinker. And she was told that she couldn't do those very things that are part of her personhood. So she writes this fiction story about a woman with postpartum depression whose husband is a doctor. And um, he kind of takes her to this remote estate um, to do this rest therapy. So he goes off to work every day. She's separated from her child. Uh, she's not, she's told she's not allowed to write, you know, and she's to stay in this bedroom and her uh, sister-in-law is kind of watching over her and caring for her. Like she's so fragile. And um, there's this crazy yellow wallpaper in this room. It's kind of an abandoned, she thinks it was an abandoned nursery, but you can see like by the way she's describing it, that it was much worse than that. There's like mm-hmm. teeth marks on the bed frame and, and the, <laughs> the paper's ripped away in different areas. And, you know, somebody was chained down in there or something. Um, so she starts to get crazier and she's writing secretly. Uh, and so you're mm. reading her secret writing and it's very stream of conscious writing. So, you know, you got to follow this type of, of, you know, when she can sneak away and write kind of in a journal type thing. And she, you can tell, you can see her getting crazier because she's starting to think that there is a woman trapped in the yellow wallpaper. 
So the story goes on of her wanting to free this woman, and I'm not going to give away the ending, but the yellow wallpaper becomes like this metaphor for like the traditional patriarchal structures of family and medicine and, and society mm. and, and how that affects women. Um, and so that really stuck with me. And I felt like, okay, well, obviously we're not in Victorian times. Um, uh, our, our churches aren't this patriarchal. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm married to a good man <laughs> who definitely like wants my intellectual input and things like that. So, you know, why mm. did this stick with me so much is because I do see that we still have a lot of blind spots in the church, which, you know, I kind of refer to as the yellow wallpaper that we don't see that's there. And um, a lot of invisible fences then because of it um, that I kind of encourage in each the end of each chapter, like here's. You know, let me show you this yellow wallpaper here. And yeah. then at the end, let's let's peel that back to reveal something, not an ugly wall, but something much more beautiful in scripture. It makes me think because while well, that story really caught my attention and got me like deeply invested in the rest of the book because it was really good. Um, <laughs> but it makes me think because you came from a different place where it wasn't like, I'm not here to burn it all down. I'm just here yeah. to like, let's peel back some of this stuff and look at it and honestly consider it, which I found like a really interesting approach because it feels like it's either like buckled down and like, yeah. we're just going to get even more hard about this and won't change our minds. Or it's like, we're just going to burn everything and everything we learned was useless. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, uh, from your perspective, where have you seen typical biblical Christian or biblical manhood and womanhood? Where has that gotten some things right? And maybe mm-hmm. what are some of the things that it's gotten wrong? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the church did need to address the sexual revolution. So I think that that was important and needed. Um, and I think that many men and women in the church were asking questions uh, about that. You know, here we are, like, you know, those of us who aren't in the daily ministry to, you know, per se, or in, um, in academia, um, you know, we're out there and regular trying to live faithfully as Christians in regular everyday life. And um, the messages that we're hearing from society about what it means to be a man and a woman woman can be conflicting to our faith. So, mm. um, you know, I think that there was a need um, and, I, and I think that a lot of the intentions behind that need were good. Um, mm. And it was a call for men and women to take more responsibility. Um, I think for men in particular, one thing that was positive about the, the the movement or biblical manhood is that it's not just addressing women with the sexual revolution, but men as well. Like men need to be pure, you know, and monogamous. And um, hey, that's a big step up from like in in our history where in the church even, you know, it's expected for men to to mm-hmm. have wandering eyes and, and not women. Um, so and you know the burden was on the women. So, I mean, I think that, you know, there's some very good things like that and uh, the call for men to be benevolent towards women, mm-hmm. to um, be sacrificing themselves. Um, I think that that's definitely scriptural. Um, so there, yeah, there's a lot, you know, that's the thing in, in the book that I'm responding to, um, which is recovering biblical manhood and womanhood. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of good uh, contributors to that book, you know, who have had, had taught wonderful stuff in the church, teach wonderful stuff in the church, um, that people have, have grown from their teaching. Um, 
and and that's the hard part like what you're saying like you want to go from one pole to the other pole as far as yeah. what you believe and the hard part is to get in there and do the challenging um separating of you know this is really good and helpful but this this actually has been harmful teaching um mm. and so that i think that there is a lot of good teaching in there and i don't want to just say hey these you know, don't read these people you know don't follow any of what they're saying um but I'm trying to actually have actual discussion and, and critically engage the writing. Mm. Yeah, no, that's good. And um, you dive into it in specific ways that I wasn't expecting. But funny enough, my fiance was like, yeah, I'm so happy that she's saying this because I've been sitting around here being frustrated about this for so long. And one oh, of the that's things wonderful that you, to hear. <laughs> yeah. One of the things you pointed out that she was like, yeah, I totally agree. I'm glad someone's actually saying this was the whole idea that men and women don't read separate bibles what do you yes. what did you mean by that what does that mean that men and women don't read yes. separate bibles well and i think here's the deal like a lot of this biblical manhood and womanhood they they pick certain key texts that they use that they teach from you know mm -hmm. um which i'm not saying that you know we shouldn't look at those texts but we have to look at them within the whole um, canon of scripture and, and the whole meta narrative of scripture um and not such a biblicist approach. So um, I think what's happened is there's been just a lot of reading scripture with this kind of filter of biblical manhood mm. and womanhood already on. And yeah. um, so, you know, women have come forward saying like, uh, we want uh, we want to be able to be ministered to as well. You know, we want to learn as well in the church. We want to be discipled as well. And they're like, great, that's wonderful. And, and it turns out women are reading a lot more than men. So the publishers, pick up on this in the in the 90s and the mm -hmm. next thing you know like there's all these resources for women's ministry um wow. and it's funny because you know um in the conservative church we would balk at radical feminism and and the way that they would say that oh the, the bible's this patriarchal construction put together by the most powerful men and it's meant to uh, subordinate women and and minorities we would balk at that However, the resources that we are pumping out uh, for men and women in the church is sending that exact same message that the Bible is mm. so patriarchal, it's so male centered that women will, we need our own resources to help us understand, you know, yeah. to help us to really be able to relate to what the Bible is saying. And so it's even come down to men study Bibles and women study Bibles. And, and there's so many messages coming out of that. Like first is that we need separate Bibles. Um, yeah. to be able to, to read it well and to study it together. Um, second, the cover design, uh, you know, ours are pretty. <laughs> yeah. And, and it just sends a message to me. I know some people are like, oh, yeah, I like pretty things. What's the big deal? But, you know, the Bible itself isn't pretty. You, you, mm -hmm. you read uh, some pretty awful things in there. Um, yeah. So it's just weird to me to put this candy, uh, candied uh, cover design for the women. Um, yeah. And then... You know, I, I took a look in the book, I take a look at the actual um, kind of more theologically uh, enriching study Bible put out by Crossway, um, the ESV Women's Devotional Bible and the men's. And when you open the covers and you see um, the contributors and then also what the articles are, it's very interesting. It sends another message. So the Women's Study Bible has male and female contributors in it. And so you think, well, that's great. We can learn from both um, male and female academics, uh, pastors who are in the ministry writing, and then, you know, authors. 
um, yeah. and, and, and stuff like that. But then the men's study Bible only has male contributors. So, mm. I mean, the message sent there is that men are not to learn from the voices of women. Um, and then when you look at the, uh, the articles, like I have them pulled up right here, uh, for the women, it is, the articles are, you have titles like the church and women at risk. And conversely for men, there's an article on leadership. Mm. So here you see women as victims in ours, the church and women at risk. And then for men, it's empowering. It's like this article is about yeah. leadership. You're a leader. Um, the second one that I contrast is eating disorders and other self-destructive behaviors. That's in the women's study Bible. Mm. Um, for the man, it's a man's inner life and why regard and why regard self-control as the one essential ingredient to manhood. Well, that's really interesting too, isn't it? Um, even I think that what they're saying about self-control, it's how men victimize women. And, and yeah. again, here we are um, with our destructive behaviors. Uh, then there's in the women's Bible, missional living. But for the man, it's life in the local church. Cool. So then you, see, you still see this potent, this potency in the male one. Um, for women, emotional health. There's an article. And for men, conversely, theirs is about calling. Huh. Um, and then for women, we see forgiveness, healing, and shame. And then men, it's about pornography. There's an article in the men's study Bible called A Man's Work. Now, they didn't dare put that in the woman's study Bible, you know, because <laughs> you know what it would be. So it's just, you know, it's you know, when you really compare them side by side, you see, wow, we're getting two mm. different messages, which frames the way that we read scripture. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm guilty myself. I've bought my, you know, in early in my marriage, I bought my Roman Catholic mother-in-law, but ESV women's study Bible, thinking she yeah. would, you know, relate and like it. But then, you know, later now in my life, as I've examined this more, I'm like, oh my goodness. Hmm. Yeah. And that's something that I noticed recently, because I like the ES, the normal ESV study Bible. And I was just curious, I was like, how many like, is it all just men that, who worked on this? Or is there like some women contributors? And I looked at it and out of like 150 names, there's not one that's female. And I was like, okay, like, I know that it could be argued away and like, well, it's just, it was just a coincidence, but it's like, I don't know. When you get to <laughs> 150 people, that no yeah. longer is like a coincidence. That's in not like a coincidence. They, scholar sought, they that's, sought out that's, only male scholars. Yeah. yeah, that is an intentional thing, which I think, I don't know, like, I've talked to a lot of people and it's just like, that's just hasn't been, especially for men that hasn't been on our radar where it's like, that's definitely a problem. And it's not like we're saying, Oh, like man Bibles are bad or women Bibles are bad, but it's like, there's just this weird thing where the articles are very bizarre. And even the mm -hmm. contributors where I would say it's great to have both men and women in both those Bibles, but for the yeah. men, it's just like, Nope, they just get like, it's just, it's bizarre to me. Um, right. And the, you say this quote that's really funny in your book where you're like, I think most men would be more embarrassed to carry their wife's Bibles than they would their wife's purse. And that, yeah. <laughs> that made me laugh. I know. I always say like to my publisher, um, you know, when we're getting to the point of like cover design, the author mm -hmm. doesn't have, you know, depending on your publisher too, the author doesn't have all that much control over what their cover of their book looks like, um, which yeah. is strange. Um, but uh, you know, I always say, please have a cover design that men wouldn't be embarrassed to be holding, you know, mm. 
because so many of the women's books, you know, books marketed to women and they can be good books um, with serious yeah. authors. And then you've got this pretty fluffy, very overly feminine cover to it. But yeah. it's just sad to me. Yeah, no, it's so strange. Um, you talked about how we often read the Bible with this lens of biblical manhood and womanhood in quotation marks already on. Mm -hmm. And it kind of twists the way we see things because we're already coming in with a bias instead of just taking the Bible as it is. And so I was wondering, mm -hmm. what are some of the passages that you saw um, as you were reading your Bible that went, huh, I don't know if this really fits the lens that we're putting on when we're reading these things. What were some of those? You know, for me, there's there's definite passages all over the place that that, mm. that do that, and I'll, I'll name some. But um, it's it's more so the whole story of scripture. Wow. Um, it, it's the whole lens that needs to come off and be changed, and 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 mm. our eyes need to look a different way. Um, the the mere fact that we have women's voices in scripture, um, yeah. in such a patriarchal time, um, you know, I kind of take a back. A look, step back and just look at that in the first part of the book and, and, and how does the woman's voice function? So often it functions to, um, it interrupts the male dominance of the text and it shows us another angle. It tells us the story behind the story. It makes visible mm. the invisible. Um, so, you know, the whole book of Ruth kind of functions in that way. Um, we are looking at this story through the eyes of two widows um, two poor <laughs> widows, one, a Moabite. So mm. um, it's very interesting. She certainly doesn't have the biblical womanhood qualities either. Here she is taking initiative. Uh, here she's working in the fields. She's providing, you know, she definitely sets the initiative with the whole Boaz thing in motion um, at the end. Yeah. So, I um, or Rahab, same thing. So many of these Old Testament women, Abigail, Tamar, Shifra, Pua, um, you just see over and over again, Deborah, JL, these do mm. not have the qualities that we were told that biblical womanhood is. Um, yeah. And their voices were important and not only um, for their uh, specific situation, but also what they're pointing to. They're very prophetic. And also it just shows that women too were tradents of the faith. And what I mean by that is that women too were responsible for handing down the faith. Um, and, and we have it told through their perspective in so many times. And, and they have a lot of discernment and resolve and um, grit, <laughs> which is it's wonderful. And it, it wasn't like, oh, you're trying to usurp male authority. <laughs> you need to sit down. No, their voices are there. So yeah. that, you know, in the Old Testament, even of all places, we see this. Um, but then, you know, in the New Testament, not only just like the specific women like uh, you know, Mary and Martha or the women traveling with Jesus, providing for his ministry, the women who stayed when all the disciples fled at the, at the cross. You know, the fact that Mary mm. Magdalene was the apostle to the apostles and the first person to share the gospel to the yeah. men. Um, yeah. You know, there's over and over again, we see Priscilla and, Qu and Aquila and Junia and Phoebe and Dorcas, uh, Lydia, so many. But um, we also just have verses in scripture, you know, telling us like, you know, when we read, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Mm. That's not a gendered verse. That's not saying um, women, we're just talking to the men right now. 
Or, you know, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. Doesn't mm. say men, you know, it's written to a whole congregation in Hebrews there. Um, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Uh, it doesn't say, women, you know, close your ears right now. Um, but desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. Mm. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. So I'm reading from Colossians 3.16, Hebrews 5.12, Romans 12.6-8, 1 Corinthians 12.31, 1 Corinthians 14.1, and 1 Corinthians 14.26. Um, these are written to congregations. They're not written to the men in the congregations. So it's actually disobedient for, for us not to be using our gifts that God gives us. Wow. And it, it's going to harm the whole church. Mm. So, I mean, we need to take a step back and look at what all of scripture is saying and, and ask the question, like, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to the churches right now in his word? Yeah, no. And that's, I've seen that happen in real life. I was in a class for the epistles, I think at, at my Bible college. And there was a um, woman there who like in between the breaks of the class, like she raised her hand with the question and she like started crying and I was like, oh my gosh, what is happening? And then she was like, mm -hmm. I just don't get why God would give me this gift and longing to teach and lead, but then I'm not supposed to teach and lead. And it's like the two worlds were colliding in her brain where she was like, I know I have this gift of teaching and leadership, but I am being told that scripture is telling me that I'm not. And she just like, didn't know what to do with it. And so it's so interesting. It's like, if you've been gifted in this, and God has, through his Holy Spirit, given you the gifts to do these things. And you're just being like, well, I can't do it. Like, that's actually, we're hindering people from actually doing the thing that God's called them to do. And that's that's mm -hmm. a scary thing. But what would you do? Because I, I know that you're reading these verses and I'm like, yeah, I agree. But I know there's people who are listening who are like, well, but what about in First Timothy 2 to 3, where it's like, oh, women can't teach or preach. And look, it's an overseer is supposed to have a wife, not a husband. And then mm -hmm. like first Corinthians where they're like, oh, woman, it says here, be, be silent, which is very out of context. <laughs> but what do you do yeah. with those verses that people would usually like load up as their ammunition for like buckling down on why the typical biblical manhood and womanhood that people think about is correct? What do you do with those? Yeah, we need to take those verses seriously and we need to read mm -hmm. them Um we need to read them with the whole context of scripture in mind. So mm -hmm. I addressed the, the Corinthians one in the book, um, which, you know, uh, listeners can, can read in more detail. I yeah. don't address the first Timothy two one. And uh, mm -hmm. I got a lot of criticism for that. And one reason <laughs> why I did not address it is because I see first Timothy two as speaking within the context of um, corporate worship. And mm -hmm. so I see it as, as speaking towards pastors and um, my book isn't about who can preach in the church. My mm -hmm. book is about disciples. You know, I'm talking about lay people and what our responsibilities and privileges and honor is as lay people. So I didn't see it as relevant to what I was writing about. I do think it's important to look at. And, you know, I've read a lot of commentaries, <laughs> which I think is, it's a confusing area in scripture. And, and to see even, you know, within complementarianism, there are different interpretations of the scripture. 
Um, there's mm-hmm. questions about, if, is he talking about authority and teaching? Is he talking about authoritative teaching? How come this is the only place in all of uh, the Greek scripture that we have this word for authority yeah. and, and not the normal word for authority? Um, it's it's definitely carries with it more aggression and violence and that usurping mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, you know, looking at this whole context of why is Paul writing First Timothy? It isn't really just to lay out some basic rules uh, to to worship, but there's some serious um, bad theology being taught and false teaching being taught in the church at the time, and, and a lot of it mm-hmm. was connected to women and goddess mm-hmm. worship and all this other stuff. Um, so I've read both complementarian and egalitarian interpretations of that verse, and uh, or from them, you know. And I find that there's, there are several plausible interpretations of that verse. And I don't know mm. where I land on that yet. Um, I, do, um, I, I do have a more, um, I don't know if complementarian is the right word, because I don't like to use that word, um, yeah. because it's a movement with a lot of error in it. But I do still um, kind of uh, go t- towards having male pastors, because I see it as more of a theologically representative thing throughout scripture with um, male, the masculinity uh, is representing the bridegroom to us. And so Mm -hmm. I look at um, the bridegroom and the bride and and that's more of how I'm, what my argument for male pastoring is. Um, I don't think that that one verse is going to topple down, you know, complementarianism or egalitarianism. But I, you know, I think we need to, to read it then with humility read it with the context of the rest of scripture, you know, read mm-hmm. it as, okay, this is the authoritative, authoritative word of God. Like, you know, what is, you know, read it prayerfully. Um, but I don't think that that verse then says that women can't teach at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and in very important ways and in even formal ways, um, just because of the verses I just read you and everything else that we see in scripture, scripture cannot contradict itself. So I know a lot of things that it doesn't mean. Um, And I also think that uh, because there are different plausible interpretations of it, um, I believe this is a secondary issue. Uh, It's Mm. not a a first order issue, like something like the doctrine of the Trinity or or the Son, Jesus Christ, or a doctrine of salvation. You know, these are issues that, you know, according to our, creeds if, if we disagree on certain things here um we're not christian we can't be christians you know then there's mm-hmm. other things that are more secondary that that cause us to go to different denominations of where we worship like baptism you know um yeah. church government and, and i think women in the pastorate would be a secondary issue it doesn't mm-hmm. affect whether or not we are a brother or a sister um but our interpretations are going to to lead us to different churches for worship. It's going to have us separated maybe in worship. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't sharpen one another, learn from one another, call one another brother and sister. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have third order issues too, that, you know, things like, you know, what you believe the end times are going to be, you know, we, in your church where you worship, you're going to have different views of that. And, um, yeah. and that's okay. So I think that we need to handle these things with humility. Mm-hmm. And and be able to learn from others and them. I don't. Maybe I'm not right <laughs> in that issue, um, and and that's that's okay. I want to I want to keep learning. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting 
posture that on both sides I find rare, where it's like, I want to learn and I don't want to just cut people off because they have a differing opinion. Because on the more typical complementarian side, you have people who it's like, oh, you think women can preach and be pastors and lead? And it's like, wow, then we're done with you. We'll never listen to you. We'll never read your stuff. We're done. And on the same mm-hmm. side too, you find that when people become more egalitarian that they go, well, you don't think that women should be pastors or preachers and and that well then we're done with you we'll never you have nothing to offer us anymore and it's like oh that is so it's like you can have disagreements and still find unity in christ like this isn't something that appears in the creeds like this wasn't something that people were breaking relationship over and and so i i find your posture really um fresh and actually uh a lot more attractive because it's like, actually, let's look at both. Let's just read scripture, wrestle with it, realize that either of us might be wrong. And honestly, like see the unity in it instead of just dividing over this thing continuously because someone right. has a differing opinion on a minor issue. Well, and for me, like I really, I wanted to speak to discipleship because sadly mm. enough, um, our views of men and women have affected discipleship and we're all disciples and so i found like one another reason why i didn't bring in that first timothy verse is i find it a distraction to Mm. what what where i'm trying to speak to and that is that women aren't even being able to be discipled well (laughs) and and this is a real problem and it doesn't only hurt the women it hurts the men too it hurts christ's whole Mm. church um and you know i want to go back to this ephesians 4 unity that we're to have as a body and um, you know, all of us being mature in the faith. So um, I think that's an important issue, but we're not even looking at the discipleship issue because we're mm. up here arguing about who can preach. So um, I don't want to stop having that conversation, but I do want to yeah. come down and say, like, hello, look at us. We just want to mm. we just want to learn over here and, and contribute. And um, and I think that's really important. So I wanted the book not only to be written with a, a complementarian audience in mind or an egalitarian audience in mind, but all mm. of us talking about discipleship together. So mm. uh, that's really what my aim is. And, and I do think that um, even when it comes to our views of um, preaching or elders, um, we're just missing out on the bigger questions. We're, we're looking at this one verse, which I'm not saying isn't important, but um, we're not, we're kind of, we're skipping straight to ethics and, and economy even without actually yeah. looking at ontology and, and what mm-hmm. we believe about the essence of man and the essence of woman and, mm-hmm. you know, what we represent. And, and for, that's what I'm writing about more in my next book is just um, in, in our typology, you know, woman represents Zion, um, you mm-hmm. know, and we see this from creation throughout all the way through scripture to revelation at the end, when you see um, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem coming down and, and what it is, it's the bride of Christ. Um, so woman as Zion, mother, bride, you know, all these things that are our very bodies are telling the story of Christ's love for his church. So I think, mm. man, we got to get that first. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you tackle in this book, how, 
this view and how that has has shaped the way we see men and women in a way that's unhealthy, but then also how that like bleeds into how it's shaped the way we see God and it's become unhealthy and unbiblical. Yeah. And you talk about this thing called ESS, which I think most people are like, what? I have no idea what this is. But it's actually really yeah. interesting because I've I've heard this argument and I heard it growing up in the church. And it wasn't until recently that I ran into people being like, hey, this is really wrong. Um, could you mm-hmm. dive into what ESS is and how it's been used to try to justify some of this um, biblical manhood and womanhood stuff? And it's actually <laughs> a really bad way to see the Trinity and who God is. Right. So ESS stands for, um, it's an acronym for eternal subordination of the sun. There's also mm-hmm. like some other um you know, related positions like eternal functional subordination of the sun. Um, they're, they're pretty much the same. Um, and, and what it means is, or what the teaching is, is that, okay, so Jesus is of the same essence of the father. However, he has a different, and they use this word role. So mm-hmm. word that's not even in scripture, um, <laughs> you know, they're going to add it in and say, okay, Jesus has a different functional role. And the reason why is because the father, um, has an authority over the son eternally Mm -hmm. speaking so um even though they're saying that they are of the same essence they're they're also at the same time saying in his very essence the father is authoritative over the Mm -hmm. son and the son submits his will to the father's will well you hear this and you think all of a sudden you're not even realizing the different categories about the doctrine of god that have to change um because now you're introducing a second divine will. Uh, you're going to have the will of the Father and the will of the Son. And that right there is heresy. Because uh, being of one essence, they also have one, they share one will, um, mm-hmm. one divine will. And so um, there's all these things, you know, that are being challenged in this teaching. But um, so this, this teaching does not align with um, the Nicene Creed, as we confess it today. Um, and they use this teaching then, and, and this is in the Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood book, and, and so many of the resources of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, mm-hmm. They use this teaching to then be an analogy saying that men in their being, in their ontology, um, are authoritative, and women mm-hmm. in our being um, are subordinate. So now... It's, it's part of who we are and that we have to put on these roles then, mm-hmm. a, a role of authority and submission in all of our interactions. Like women even need to think about this, you know, in the book it says, if a mailman comes to the door, you know, I need to be thinking about <laughs> how I can make him feel like a man. Oh, you know, my goodness. Or, you know, if you were just happened to be driving in my neighborhood and you were lost um, and, you know, horror of horrors, the only person you can find is a housewife uh, to oh. ask directions. Because, you know, part of their teaching is that uh, women should never be giving direct or personal guidance to a man because of this. So how can uh. you ask me for directions and still be okay and like insecure in your masculinity? Oh my <laughs> you know, gosh. It's like, these kind of things are coming up in the book. But um, <laughs> so this teaching is then used, you know, for women in the church, like we just need to be subordinate. And there, there actually isn't anything in our being that is potent, uh, that mm. contributes, that uh, there's no reciprocity. It's just mm. uh, puffing up the man, basically, and, and making him you know that he's in authority. 
Yeah, and I've seen that also bleed into, and this is an off-topic thing, but I've seen it bleed into where people get really confused about the cross because they're told, like, oh, yeah, the Father's in authority, and, like, the Son just has to do whatever the Father wants. And so when you look at the cross, a lot of people, like, logically are working this out and go, so God is just saying, I'm going to kill and abuse Jesus, and Jesus just has to take it because that's what his role is. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. And it makes this weird thing where people now look at the cross as God abusing Jesus when if you mm-hmm. actually have a biblical view of the Trinity where they're equals, it's like, no, they're like both together. This is their plan together. Mm-hmm. The son wasn't working against the father be like, oh, no. And the father wasn't like, you're going to do it no matter what. It's like they both have equal authority. <laughs> they're doing this together. Right. Or it's they, just like I it mean, just creates this, all these issues. It, it really does. And um, yeah, it's not only the father's wrath that's satisfied. Mm-hmm. It's the son's wrath, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're they share that. So it is, you have to also take in the doctrine then of, you know, the incarnate Christ, he takes on a human will as well. So he has a divine will and a human will. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of fine order points that need to be worked through um, theologically Mm -hmm. speaking, but what's happened here is this ESS teaching, which is harmful in many ways, like you're, you're saying, has been put on popular level teaching and resources mm. um, for you know women's ministries, men's ministries in the church, and like you say, like you didn't know that was an actual thing, but you were hearing that teaching um, yeah. in the church. And interestingly, it was in 2016 um, when a woman, Rachel Miller, started uh, writing about it a little bit. Egalitarians were writing about how wrong it was for a while, but they were being ignored because you know they're scary liberals. And uh, we don't need to listen to them. Um, but then, so I'm looking at this saying, yeah, this is totally horrible and, um, and harmful. But I know that if I write about it, I'm a woman. So what's mm-hmm. going to happen? You know, I'm going to be ignored. So um, I'm talking to some of my pastor and academic friends about this problem. And uh, William Gulliger, a pastor over at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, who is also more of an academic uh, I, I asked him to write a, a guest uh, blog for my mm. my website on this topic and how damaging it is. And let me tell you, get a man to write about it. And he was passionate about it. You know, he was like, yeah, this is terrible. I'll, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> so on my little housewife theologian blog at the time, um, I put that on there and all hell broke loose. I mean, like oh, just gosh. there was, it's called the Trinity debate. You can uh, Google it now. But I mean, books have been written, uh, conferences have been had, things are changing in seminaries because of it. Um, So I I think a lot of good is coming out of it, but um, it it rocked the evangelical world, you know, to Mm. all of a sudden people are like, whoa, you know, I learned this in seminary (laughs) or, you know, in some of the best-selling systematic theologies have it in there. So Mm -hmm. it's. And it's really bad. So, you know, the, the patristic scholars weighed in and said, yeah, this is not Nicene Christianity at all. And it's uh, not Orthodox. So it's interesting to see how they were getting away with it for so long. So as we conclude, um, there's a lot of, so with all of this, it's like, okay, so what is biblical manhood and womanhood and then if it's not if this is like a view it's like okay you've got some good things but you're getting a lot of other things wrong what to you would be biblical manhood or biblical womanhood how are we called to live as unique followers of jesus 
Well, I, I'd say let's just throw away that term, <laughs> biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, we're not called anywhere in scripture to biblical manhood and womanhood. We're called to be disciples of Christ and mm. we're all to look to him. You know, I'm not to talk to someone different than, than men are um, on how to be a Christian. So um, I think that we put that word biblical in front of it and it gives it some sort of authority that mm-hmm. over bad teaching. So um, I just don't even want to use that term for my, myself. I don't think it's helpful. But um, as men and women, then I think that we ha- we're, we're to pursue the same virtues. Yeah. But I do, I do believe there's a beautiful story being told in our sexuality about Christ's mm-hmm. love for his church. And even, even more than that, the gift that the father gave to the son in eternity, his bride, this bride. Um, so I think that that's what story our bodies are telling. Um, I'm working in the Song of Songs mainly to tell this story in my next book. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about it. That's called uh, going to be called the sexual reformation. I think there needs huh. to be reformation in the church. Um, and I, we do need to look at uh, the typology that our bodies are, are telling too. So there's some beautiful stuff in there. It would take, you know, a lot more time to <laughs> break down into detail, but um, yeah, I think we need to step away from that teaching and get back to um, the glorious design and, and the glory of our bodies before God and, and, and God and our being told in our bodies. And um, when we do that, then we can work through some of these, these uh, economic and ethical issues. And I think they'll have a lot more meaning behind mm. them then instead of, you know, just being told that marriage should be between one man and one woman. Well, why, you know, mm. there's something really beautiful there. Um, Christ's exclusive love for his bride. Um, and, and, and why is it a man and a woman? Well, you know, we have that masculine feminine thing being shown there, but also it's like, um, the bride can't marry the bride and the groom can't marry, you know, Christ can't marry himself. Um, Mm. so there's just so much more meaning, um, that we need to look at behind, um, the ethics of what we're teaching. The ethics might be good, but we might be teaching them in very bad ways. Mm. And, And that's not helpful to hurting people. Yeah, no, that is so good. Um, yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree more that like, let's just drop it and let's actually like focus on what does it mean to follow Jesus? And let's just, yeah. let's do that together. Let's follow Jesus yeah. together. Amy, yes. thank you so much. This has been great. I've had a ton of fun. I couldn't recommend your book enough uh, for people who are want to learn more. Please go read it. And I am very eager and looking forward to your next book. I'm excited for that. Great. Thanks. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.